right, it's official. Alice and I are committing self-cancellation harakiri. So since the recent gender-themed episode, we've been engaged in a fiery WhatsApp correspondence trying to determine whether the J.K. Simmons character in Whiplash was always right about both art and masculinity or merely almost always right. And uh, in the meantime, we have overlooked uh, a (laughs) truly embarrassing uh, lapse in fact-checking. So during that gender-themed episode, we talked about William Stafford's poem, Traveling Through the Dark, and we had a brief brief moment of, uh, of, of dis- dispute or confusion over Kim Stafford. We, we had read an interview with Kim Stafford and some other people about the poem, and uh, I, I assumed that Kim Stafford was William Stafford's wife or, li- or his, uh, his widow, and uh, Alice corrected me that no, uh, Kim Stafford is in fact William Stafford's daughter. Uh, lo and behold, Shane, uh, Shane wrote in to let us know with uh, (laughs) cautious but effective use of all caps to say, Kim Stafford is William Stafford's son. So uh, that's it. Alice and I are uh, are hanging up our podcasting mics. Uh, Both Poetry Says and Sleeve Rickets are over. We are calling it quits. We have have resolved to uh, retreat and consider our sins and do better. And in all sincerity, uh, to Kim Stafford, if he ever hears this, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I do have, I do have, however, a, uh, a recommendation. If you need something sort of reassuring and uh, self-esteem building to make you feel uh, less, uh, less disrespected and emasculated by two idiot podcasters, then I can't recommend enough that you, you you just sit down with a steaming cup of cocoa and a nice weighted blanket and enjoy the heartwarming, feel-good classic Whiplash. Start counting. Five, six, seven. In four, damn it! Look at me! One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. Now, was I rushing or was I dragging? Rushing or dragging. Rushing. So you do know the difference. If you deliberately sabotage my band, I will fuck you like a pig. Buckley Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you for listening, all of you. Thanks. I do appreciate it. Um, thanks for all of the nice notes and recommendations and uh, uh, t-shirt purchases and uh, subscription purchases and, and everything that you do to support the show and get the word out. It makes a difference. Even if you just take a moment to let somebody in your life know that this show exists because chances are uh, they don't know. <laughs> but, but if they have any interest in poetry or in verbose uh, lapsed Catholic assholes, then they might find it of some interest. 
Anyway, if you if you uh, like the show, but you feel like you're not getting enough of it, then you can go to sleericketts.substack.com and sign up for The Secret Show. There's 17 episodes up there now. You get the access to all of those right away. And I've been putting out about three episodes a month. I think if I keep that pace up, I may raise the annual rate, but... Uh, I'll give you fair warning before I do that. And um, uh, and you can always sign up just for the, the free subscription. Just put your email address in and you'll get a notice anytime there's a new episode and you'll get a little free, uh, a free uh, sample. I put one out just this past week that I've already gotten some good responses to. Uh, so thank you all for that. Uh, and again, there are some new t-shirt designs. Daniel, my brother, just sent me a slew of new ideas he has for t-shirt designs. And we'll see We'll see what we can do. He proposed a hat. I don't know. I have, My head is so fucking big. I can't wear most hats. <laughs> I have, like, I have, I have uh, the largest standard size of head. And most hats are one size fits all. So it doesn't work very well. But but maybe we will. Uh, we'll see what we can do about a Slee Ricketts. Uh, branded hat uh, or maybe something else I don't know but this week I finally have for you the long promised correspondence episode I've got so much got so many emails and I realized that uh, because my computer occasionally uh, reboots itself you know download downloads a new uh, iOS and then reboots itself I realized that occasionally my my um, my million open tabs get closed and I, and I lose track of some of the emails, but I think I've got most all of the emails that are sort of most pertinent to recent episodes up and ready to go through. One of them, of course, was from Shane, who very helpfully <laughs> let us know that Kim Stafford is a man. Um, he also wrote in to say in response to, in, in a Secret Show episode, I read a uh, Ryan Wilson's translation of Leopardi's poem, The Infinite, and I compared it to a couple of other poems, one of which was Keats's When I Have Fears That I May Cease to Be. And I suggested that Keats was inspired by Leopardi. Uh, Shane wrote in, very quickly to let me know that uh, that is impossible because Keats had actually written that poem the year before. So not only did Keats' poem come first, but given the uh, g- given ra- rates of travel and translation in the early 19th century, it's pretty unlikely that Leopardi had heard of Keats' poem either. But maybe as Shane suggested, uh, apparently a vibe was afoot because I think there is, there are some similarities between the poems, but. Anyway, I um, uh, thank you for Shane. Also, in response to a Secret Show episode uh, about a, in which we discuss, oh God, Alice and I discuss an, an ultra XXX rated video um, that I won't try to describe, but if you are interested, you can go to the Secret Show and find out. Joshua Megan wrote in just to let me know uh, and he, he said specifically, this is not off the record. He wanted to make sure that you all have the benefit of this observation. He he found in my rambling monologue a perfect line of iambic pentameter, which he, he helpfully scanned uh, in his email. The line is, but there's the dick and he's the RoboCop. So I'll, I'll leave that there. Again, you can, <laughs> you can sign up for The Secret Show if you want to know more. 
Um, then I got a whole slew of responses to the difficulty episode, the two-part difficulty episode. I, I figured I would just read some of the most salient and contentious of these. Um, partly I was fascinated because I got, I tended to get responses in a number of different directions. Um, I am always excited when listeners write in to disagree and uh, I'm, I'm even more excited when they all seem to disagree with each other as well as with me. <laughs> uh, so this was a note from Alex McCune. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but uh, I believe he's an Australian poet which means he would probably pronounce that diphthong in some unfathomable way that I, I can't even approximate. So at any rate, he writes on the subject of reader as guest versus reader as resident. I have, uh, I've used this analogy a number of times. I, I often refer to the writer or the poet as a host and I praise hospitality, being a good host in your writing. And I also talk about the reader's privileges and responsibilities as a guest. Uh, Alex takes pretty great issue with this whole set of comparisons. He says, Dear Matthew, just to extend your poet as good slash bad host analogy, I don't really want to be a guest in a poem. I want to make the poem my home, have it by heart and live with it. And in doing this, by memorizing the poem, I feel like I am trusting the poet to make the best home they can for me. If the poet is making choices for the sake of accommodating guests, i.e. first-time readers, rather than I, who have come to live in the poem, memorize the poem, recited it hundreds of times by heart, then personally, I would take that as a betrayal of my trust. So this is, uh, this is a criticism that gave me pause because the suggestion seems to be that you know, if your if your concern as a poet is is chiefly on hospitality, then you may find yourself in something like the 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 lyrical equivalent of the hospitality industry, running a uh, a hotel rather than a home, and so that you're so that you're you're always maximally prepared for. Uh, the total stranger who's just passing through, but as anyone who spent more than a couple nights in a hotel room knows, you're not providing much uh, comfort or uh, or tr you know true rest or sense of arrival to anybody who cares to spend more than a, a quick first reading with the poem. So that's you know that's a totally fair. Uh, counterpoint, I think, that, you know, if your poem is good for nothing but a casual first-time reader, then it's probably a pretty limited poem. My, my slight resistance to this idea that, the, that Alex says, well, I, you know, I want to be a uh, I want this to, I want to make this poem my home. I want to have it by heart. I want to live with it. I want to get inside it. I want to spend lots of time with it. It's a little bit the same hesitation I have when I hear people defend notoriously difficult poets by saying, well, I want to, 
you know, you should spend more time. You really need to dig in and deeply, you know, spend time trying to solve the poem and trying to understand the poem. You, you know, you're, you can't be so casual in your reading. You have to, you know, the, the, the reader has an obligation really to, really to, to try hard, really just to, to dive in head first and spend a long time with the poem. And that's what, you know, poems are really, that's what, that's what it's all about. You want to make the poem your home. You want to learn it by heart. You want to, uh, you want to get get it into your under your fingernails. I, I am sympathetic with that urge and that feeling of, you know, possessiveness or even territorialness about uh, territoriality. Does one say? I don't know about poems that one loves. I I feel a little bit of that about poems that I know by heart, poems that I've spent a lot of time with, that I love. But the question that always comes back to me is, well, that's all well and good, but the world is full of poems that don't reward a first reading. Poems that don't particularly throw their doors open and welcome the reader in. And the problem is that almost all of those poems are pieces of shit, or at best they're, or if not totally worthless, they're highly mediocre. And it's really only a small, small number that are really worth that diving in, that are really worth that sleuthing out and that looking up and that cogitating and that, you know, making yourself at home in them. You know, most poems are not worth learning by heart and spending hours and days and months dedicated to them, making them your home. So the question of hospitality to me is not one of the poet's sort of final purpose, right? Because of course the poet is also writing the poem in some sense for himself. I'm always very skeptical of people who say, I, I only write for myself, because I kind of want to say like, well, then why the fuck do you, are you trying to publish it? Like, what, who, who do you expect to read it? Like, it, it can't really just be for yourself, but it has to be, but you have to be writing to some degree out of uh, a feeling that is native to you, out of some experience, some thought, some, interest something that is important to you and so of course just as a hotel room is ultimately a little bit cold and impersonal for the long-term guest it's totally cold and impersonal for the owner of the hotel right like nobody would write poems if the only goal were hospitality but i guess i guess my principle is that the first job the poet's first job is hospitality. His first job is to make the reader feel at home. Maybe not in quite the same way one feels at home in a place one has lived all one's life, but also not merely the way one feels at home when one is welcomed into a, uh, a freshly cleaned hotel room with uh, mints on the pillow and that funny uh, paper band wrapped around the toilet seat. The real magic that occurs in a poem when I when I really connect with a poem is a magic not a feeling that I have been uh, thoroughly accommodated the way that I'm accommodated when I uh, get into a taxi cab or I take a seat in a movie theater, but that I am 
I am brought into a place that is important to somebody already. And I'm made to feel as if I belong there too. And once I arrive there, I can share something with the poet who, who has lived in this place a long time, who, to whom this is deeply intimate and important. And rather than simply being treated like a customer, I come to be treated as um, maybe a friend, maybe something more than that, maybe something like a second self, the way that uh, epitaphs were traditionally written for the passerby to read aloud, momentarily lending the dead one his living voice. When we read a poem, we're lending the author our living mind uh, so that we can inhabit this place with him. And that hospitality lets us know that we're welcome there, but it certainly shouldn't be the end of the transaction. <laughs> it shouldn't be all there is to it, right? There's a, there's a, there's a word for language that is interested in nothing but hospitality, uh, and that is... Uh, advertising. Um, well, no, that's not advertising. That's really cliche, right? Language that does nothing but be familiar to us, that retains no new meaning, no new suggestion, no new discovery, uh, and no new comfort. But thank you uh, to Alex McCune for writing in, and I hope to hear more thoughtful disagreement from him soon. So in uh, contrast to Alex's criticism, I got a, <laughs> this was the first of many uh, emails I got from Matt Wall. Uh, we have had a really robust and lengthy correspondence, Matt and, and uh, Cameron and I, and in fact, in an upcoming episode, he we're going to hear from Matt directly, but I thought I would just read his, his first email to me uh, that was in response to the difficulty episode. So he says, uh, hey there, just found your show. I have a few comments here for you. And <laughs> he numbers them. I don't know if I'm going to read. I may compress some of this as I go through. But he says, the idea that making language simple is how tyranny starts has some truth to it in Nazi Germany and the MAGAs. But when you say that all simple language does this, is wrong. I think this is wrong. Keeping language simple gives the work to the people, for all people to be able to read it and understand it. To make things difficult is to put one person, the writer, above the readers in a tyrannical way. You may not like this, but let's go off of what you and your co-host said about Jeffrey Dollhouse, which I think he means Jeffrey Hill. You all said that he has the voice of God. That's quite the pedestal that you have put him up on. You all gushed over him. One of you read a poem of his and said, I don't know what it means, but I know I like it. That sounds like sheep if I ever heard it, blindly following the leader for no other reason than he is the leader. Uh, <laughs> um, this is Matt's style. I have come to, I've come to appreciate it in its way. <laughs> He's certainly combative, but he also is uh, self-deprecating and, and um, <laughs> as well. Uh, so he... Uh, I, maybe I'll just keep reading and I'll see. <laughs> uh, this is the same guy, by the way, who wrote in to let us know that, um, that we, Alec Cameron and I had missed, had, 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 had neglected to take into account the 
the lived experience of people with fat dicks in, in one of our one of our metaphors in another episode. All right, number two in his in his uh, uh, screed. When you do this, when people do this, I guess this is um, uh, letting letting the blindly following the leader. Okay, when you do this, when people do this, this is gatekeeping. This is turning those great poets in safety quotes and the great people who study them, the oligarchy. You all are the ones in charge. You all are the ones who get to decide what is art and what is not. Jeffrey played all of you well, and you all fell for it. Now you repeat it as fact, which pushes others away who don't have the education that you all or the poets you worship have. Three, this is strange because at the beginning of the show, you made the analogy of older women faculty having a chip on their shoulder about the younger generation coming in. This same chip is what the academics have, what they have been trying to stamp out poor Whitman since the wasteland. That sounds a little like great replacement theory if we are still trying to tie poetry to fascism. If academia gave poetry to the people, they know that their entire being would be useless. They would have no point. If anyone could write poetry, if anyone could do it, why should a highly paid academic have a job or social standing at all? It's all bullshit, all of it. Eliot knew it and everyone after him knew it. Knew it. It's no different from the Catholic Church keeping truth from the people. It's no different from the Catholic Church keeping truths from the people through the Dark Ages and making up shit to keep people in their place. Academia would rather poetry be obscure and little than have it be popular and loved by the masses. Uh, and then he says in the end, <laughs> I, I still have 17 minutes in the episode. <laughs> Didn't even bother to finish it. Uh, oh, and then he closes by saying, uh, I really like the show. <laughs> All the best <laughs> Uh, so thank you, Matt. Uh, it, we, we will, uh, Cameron and I uh, will have much more to say about all of this, but I guess I kind of see, without trying to take on the questions of MAGAs or Nazi Germany or academia or the Catholic Church, uh, <laughs> and Great Replacement Theory, which I only vaguely understand is a, a Tucker Carlson theory, about race that I I don't have any interest in, but I, I guess my response to this is sort of the converse of my response to Alex, which is I I certainly don't want poetry to be something that is inaccessible to most people. I think most people enjoy uh, rhyme and music and rhythm and language in a lot of different forms. Often, you know, pop musical forms, rap music. Uh, uh, nursery rhymes, children's poetry, uh, you know, all of that poetry belongs to the people, as, as Matt puts it. And I'm all for poetry that, that people can enjoy uh, relatively effortlessly. I mean, my goal with the poems I write is to make them effortless to read. I know uh, Cameron is, is on very much on the other side of the fence, with that question, but I, I want my poems to be easy to read. I I want them, I want to work as hard as I can to make them as clear as possible and as enjoyable as possible. Uh, and I am a fan of poetry that does that. I also like a lot of poetry that doesn't do that in particular, but I I don't think that simply wanting to spend a lot of time with poetry, wanting to talk about it, think about it, pull it apart um, and chew over it means that one can't also appreciate poetry that uh, immediately gives some pleasure 
in a relatively effortless way. And to defend Alice, who he, whom he picks on when he says, uh, it sounds like sheep to say, I don't know what it means, but I know I like it about a Jeffrey Hill poem. To me, that's a, that's a, I mean, that's an experience I've had innumerable times. It was an experience I had the other day with that uh, Leonie Adams poem uh, about with the, um, uh, what is it? The alas kind element. Is that what, what it was called? About the, the being locked in the tree like Ariel. Uh, that that's a totally universal experience, I think, of, of hearing something, enjoying it, knowing it sounds good, knowing it sounds pretty or moving, not totally digesting it on a first encounter. I mean, to me, that's how I know that a poem is worth going back to to try to get more out of it. I, you know, very seldom have I listened to a poem, gotten everything I thought there was to get out of it, and then continued to be interested in it later. But you know, just as Shakespeare wrote to the globe, which included groundlings as well as nobility, included very educated people and completely uneducated people, uh, and he tried to play to all of them. He tried to provide some pleasure to all of them and enough forward propulsion in the plays that everybody wanted to keep sitting or standing to see what happened next. I think that's what the best writing does. It's certainly what the writing... It's certainly what one, I think, should aim for in one's writing. But uh, as I said, uh, Matt has lots more to say, and Cameron and I have lots more to say to him. So that will be coming soon. That is, I just started editing that episode. It's really long. I'm going to have to break it up. It's super fun. It's good. It's, it's very entertaining. He is, as I said, a very uh, funny guy. You can go to, he, he had a, I don't know if his podcast is available on regular podcast apps he seems to be following the trend of cooler younger people which is to to uh encounter podcast exclusively on youtube still seems bizarre to me maybe i'll put some of our episodes up there at some point but uh he has a regular show he does on youtube he also uh, learned about sleeve rickets from eleanor who's alice's friend and correspondent on poetry says sometimes um, Eleanor also has a show uh, on YouTube, and she she dedicated at least a portion of a recent uh, recording to making fun of our difficulty episode. Most of her criticism seemed to be that everything we said was obviously stupid and boring, <laughs> but she said it in a fairly entertaining way. So I won't try to argue with her exactly, though I, I do would love at some point to get her on Sleeve Rickets to maybe to take up some of this stuff, but I will include a link and I certainly recommend listening to that. Um, so thank you to Eleanor, thank you to uh, Matt. Um, I got a couple of notes from uh, Zara. She mentioned, I think in an earlier one that Ozymandias was, uh, Ke uh, sorry, not Keith, uh, Shelley's uh, great son of Ozymandias was a poem that had been written quickly. I think, I think she then clarified that that was, um, that there was a, it was written as part of a contest, but maybe unlike Frankenstein, there wasn't a time limit on that contest. We don't know how quickly he wrote it, but um, but her point was, of course, that uh, as as Matt Wall also says in some other writing, and uh, in another one of his emails, that that of course great poems can come quickly. That that you know difficulty that there's no hard and fast rule about how hard one works on a good poem, uh, which is certainly true. 
so she wrote another note to um, in response specifically to the second part of the difficulty episode. She said, love the show as usual, would simply like to interject two qualifying notes. One, whether a poet is difficult and how they are or aren't may depend on their phase. Drury Graham's early book, Erosion, and some poems from the books that follow that one, in other words, early Graham, can be worthwhile or difficult in Cameron's sense of lyrically complex, but with good reason. The impenetrability of her later books was not dispelled for me at all by a lecture I heard Helen Vendler give on Graham a few years ago. And again, I, I have read very little Joy Graham, but I know uh, Cameron has um, admires some of her work uh, more, more than other, uh, other books. And uh, I know Shane has, has strongly recommended it as well. So that makes I think I think Zara is totally right. I mean, in short, that 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 a uh, the same poet can go through various phases. I mean, this is true for John Ashbery. I tend to find earlier John Ashbery more approachable. Certainly, Self Portrait in a Convex Mirror is is terrific. I I think it's a little more flawed than sometimes people acknowledge, but that's a great, weird, but but I think totally approachable, uh, a long poem, and I. And I find it to be one in which, um, unlike, I mean, here's here's an example, I guess, of where, uh, you know, with John Ashbery's later poems, they are difficult, but they have that hotel quality that Alex disparages, right? I, I step into them and I think, well, it's not just that this is not particularly accommodating to me, right? When uh, an Alvin Feynman's poem, The Preamble's One, I got the impression that he cared a great deal about everything he was saying, but he just hadn't bothered to make it in any way uh, accommodating to me. He hadn't bothered to make to, to allow me to get hold of anything in there. He was just deeply, you know, he was like I walked into his study and he was hunched over his desk staring down at the page and he never bothered to look up. Whereas with, with, uh, with a lot of John Ashbery poems, especially later John Ashbery, I get the feeling that he doesn't especially care about what's happening in there, but he also doesn't think I should care about what's happening in there. And then I just get pissed off that he published it, with, you know, because publishing again suggests, hey, there's something here you should bother to get hold of. And to me, it, it, I, they walk in and it just seems like a bunch of uh, of uh, second-rate one-liners. Um, but I do. I have a whole one-liners theory I want to I want to discuss with Alice on another episode coming up soon after we after we do our uh, have finished doing our penance for. <laughs> I feel so. I do do feel so fucking bad about that Kim Stafford thing. Jesus Christ! What a <laughs> god damn it! Uh, we are the worst. All right, sorry. This is um, then Zara's second note was difficulty has at least two separate aspects. Oh yeah, this is a really good point. Okay. She says, uh, Zara, Zara again, she says, difficulty has at least two separate aspects. Zara, and Zara uh, Rabe, by the way, I actually, as with fucking everybody on the show, I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Um, Zara Rabe or Rab, uh, she is a, um, a poet and she also helps to run the Newburyport Poetry Festival um, where Amit Majmadar and I are gonna be reading in the spring. Um, but Zara's a, uh, a powwow poet. If you if you know the New England formal crowd, uh, then uh, Am Juster, Bill Coyle, um, Marion Corbett, a whole slew of people, Rena Espiat, um, uh, Michael, fuck, what's his last name? He's so ornery. If I get his last name, if I'm going to forget his last name, he's going to be so pissed. Uh, 
Michael something, but he's very funny and ornery. And when I showed up at Westchester 10 years ago, he said, I have sports coats older than you. Um, but he's also a powwow poet. And I just fucked up. Sorry. Uh, anyway, Zara is, is one of the powwow poets and, and is um, a very accomplished and, and a much published poet in her own right. But she says, and this was, I think, a really good point. I'm really glad somebody wrote up. She says, difficulty has at least two separate aspects. One is the difficulty of the notion or idea or situation or experience. What World War I poets describe as difficult in one sense, but that isn't a difficulty of the articulation. I don't see that there can ever be a reason to be less than lucid and clear in how one speaks or writes. Whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent, etc. That's, uh, of course, the famous last line of Wittgenstein's uh, Tractatus... Oh, fuck. Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, is that it? I think that's it. Uh, Whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. Uh, I'm not going to try to paraphrase that fucking tract, which is a fascinating read, but I am not a logician or a philosopher, so I won't try to give an account of it. But I am very, I'm very much with Zara in thinking that um, there is, if I just find it really hard to, to credit the idea that it ever makes sense to be less clear than one can be. I certainly understand saying, well, I can't do this any better. I can't do this any more clearly. So I'm going to leave it the way it is because if I keep working on it, I'm going to make it worse. But I don't understand saying to oneself, I could make this clearer for the reader, but I don't want to. I want it to be harder to understand. That's an impulse or a, or a judgment that I just I, I have a really hard time sympathizing with. What does make good sense to me, and I think we, we briefly brought up this possibility in the episode but did not dig into it the way Zara does, is that difficulty is not necessarily opposed to clarity. Difficulty can mean other things as well, right? Such as uh, the, the, the difficulty not of comprehending the denotation but of digesting the implications of something, of a piece of writing. Reading, you know, Anthony Hecht's poems tend to be exceedingly lucid, but also in many cases, very difficult. He writes often about the Holocaust. Not much that's more difficult than that, but, uh, but it's certainly worth writing about, as with the World War I poets. So I'm, I'm very much with Zara there. And, and in fact, what comes to mind is uh, again, I think I've mentioned this before, but Italo Calvino's essay, Lightness, in which he talks about the terrorist attacks of the 1970s in Italy and in other parts of Western Europe. And uh, he says that in that period, a lot of his peers were writing about darkness and death and horror and suffering. And their writing often became very oppressive, very onerous, very difficult to get through, not because it was hard to understand, but because uh, what there was to understand was hard to swallow. And he uses the analogy of Perseus slaying Medusa by, um, by holding up a reflective shield and looking at her face only in the mirror. He says, he, he, you know, Perseus didn't look the horror in the face. He saw it glancingly and cut it down that way because to stare horror full in the face is to turn to stone, to become so heavy, 
so burdened with what you are perceiving that it becomes impossible to articulate anything or impossible to uh, to communicate, maybe is a better way to put that than rather than to articulate, to communicate beyond the mere stating of horrible facts. Uh, so I, um, I know that there's certainly plenty of disagreement to be had there, but I'm very sympathetic to, to Zara's distinction, that it is worth taking on difficult subjects, but I don't know that I think it's worth making one's own writing more difficult in itself, at least insofar as difficulty means incomprehensibility or, or uh, uh, demand placed upon the reader simply to arrive at a denotative comprehension. All right, so I got a lot of grief for the introductory uh, segment, I, my introduction to that episode, which in which I talked about the my objections to the expression words fail. Cameron gave me a lot of grief about that. That's um, in uh, in some uh, recent segments in in more re in more recent episode that you can get. I think at least some of it is on the main feed and some of it's on the secret show. He took me to task for that and for uh, another comparison I made to a conversation with a uh, girl in college who told me if you just <laughs> if you just shut up you'd fuck a lot more. Uh, Cameron, Cameron told me that I was, I was uh, uh, out of line saying that about poetry and Shane, I think in a very uh, elegant and Shane-like fashion pointed out that uh, I said, I said, you know, saying words fail is, uh, is it, words don't, I said, I think I said words don't fail because words are merely tools and Shane responded, I think he said, bruv, tools fail all the time, <laughs> like tools Tools constantly fail. Uh, I might I might respond that it's a poor craftsman who blames his tools, but uh, fair points all around. I am uh, nothing if not frequently uh, dumb and impulsive in my rants. But I did want to read. I got a um, I got a great uh, response from Jonathan Farmer, who I've been trying to get back on the show. I really want to get Jonathan back on because I had so much fun with him the first time, and uh, and I always have fun talking with him in person. So I really, I do want to get Jonathan back on and, and we got to just figure out what it is we're going to talk about. But he wrote in to say, I liked that riff on the, on the words fail. As you imply, like much in avant-garde poetry, it seems to suggest an unacknowledged utopianism. This idea that, that there's some universe in which words would not fail. He goes on to say, in the same way that the absence of God is only an absence if you begin from an assumption that there should be a God, language's inability to do X is only a crisis or a failure if you assume we should be able to share everything about our inner lives and that it's language's role to make that possible. He then separate, you know, when I asked if I could share this on the show, he, he separately said he just wanted to make sure that he he was not, he wanted, he wanted to make clear that he was not saying uh, that it's absurd to believe there's a God, but that there's that one should one should take note of what one is assuming. And in the case of language, uh, it's only fair to say that language fails if you are assuming that language should somehow be a frictionless monorail system for all of our thoughts and feelings, just just transporting them effortlessly into the minds of others, which of course is not even remotely what language is. Uh, he went on later to say, uh, I also really liked your explanation of the flaw in Hill's description of difficulty. I'd go even further, though. I think he's wrong about tyranny, or at least he leaves out the more important point. The simplifications of tyranny become more, not less appealing when the alternative is difficulty. Not that poetry is determining our politics, but if the anti-totalitarians refuse to speak clearly, they're just clearing the field for the tyrant's appeal. 
I think there he's he's again quite right that uh, you know there there much and much many smart things have been said about the uh, the logical and moral problems with a with a, a statement like or with an imperative like make America great again, but it is simple. It is sort of brutally simple, as with the Brexit slogan, take back control. And I think Jonathan's point is that uh, whatever the dangers of those kinds of oversimplified and maybe arguably tyrannical slogans, uh, they're not made less appealing by uh, Judith Butler's uh, indecipherable cogitations uh, in the New York Times or, or elsewhere. Um, I, I, in fairness to Jonathan, he didn't invoke Judith Butler, so I don't want to get him in trouble for that. But I was, you know, I, I'm like whenever I read some essay in college in which language poets referred to their own poetry as like the the liberating poetry of the people, I just kind of like the thought is always like, well, what people? Like what? Like if you're the champions of the working class, like great, but like what? Who wants to read this? Like what? Who with a fucking college education wants to read this? Let alone somebody who. Uh, has just you know spent all day doing manual fucking labor. Uh, I I am I am with with Matt Wall again at least insofar as uh, it, there's nothing wrong with poetry that is immediately appealing to people who don't make reading and writing about poetry their uh, their livelihood. So um, I think I think uh, Jonathan's quite right about all of this. Oh, I got a, a, a lovely and long note passed along by Cameron from a, a family friend of his. I, I'll just read a, a short little segment of it. He was writing specifically in response to the rabbit hole episode, but I thought that he had a note. Actually, I'm saying he. I don't know if it's a man or a woman, but um, they wrote about the, the the particularly the second half where Brian and I really dig into each other. He wrote, or they wrote, I did enjoy the contentious arguing. I found myself wanting to jump in and contribute. I'm not sure it was so much about who is or isn't a true Christian or true atheist, more to do with how you engage with people whose views you A, disagree with, or B, consider puerile, or C, consider harmful to themselves or others. And uh, I, I totally agree. And I and that's, you know, maybe that that goes for much of the correspondence in this episode and much of the podcast at large. You know, I certainly uh, have no plans to, I certainly don't intend to, uh, to try to um, uh, uh, persuade everybody of my, of any, you know, message or opinion of my own so much as I'm interested in, in uh, tearing into this stuff with um, honestly and frankly and trying, and especially, especially in the case of, of you know, strong disagreement. Because um, that's the, I mean, that's the, that is the, I mean, that is really the problem with most fucking conversations about poetry. Everybody's fucking nodding uh, happily along. Speaking of which, if you have not listened to the most recent episode of Poetry Says, uh, uh, Alice talks to a poetry critic, but not poet, whose name is John, Jim, Zhang, Zhang is the last name. I can't remember the John or something who really pulls the knives out and has lots to say about the state of Australian poetry in a way that I found highly entertaining and gratifying. And I felt like he should just, he should just do all of Slee Ricketts in like one hour and then the podcast would be over because he would have accomplished everything I, I try to do. So uh, do go listen to that and, um, and long live, 
uh, long live uh, civil but contentious disagreement. Um, all right, so one more. <laughs> all right, two, two more notes in response to the relevance episode. Matt Wall wrote in with just like a perfect Mobius strip of a <laughs> like an observation about. We were talking about relevance. We were talking specific, specifically about Garth Greenwell's essay in which he, he says that, you know, there's, there's nothing less relevant to, uh, or nothing sort of, you know, arguably or seemingly less relevant than uh, white guys writing about adultery. <laughs> that's, that's sort of uh, uh, Zen koan of a response was, it seems that white guys writing about adultery is very relevant to the white dudes who publish books. It seems that they want to see themselves in the work they publish. <laughs> it's like the uh, like Colonel Kurtz's diamond thunderbolt to the brain. <laughs> just, just. All right. So last uh, last note for today: Elijah Blumhoff or Blumhoff. His last name is spelled a couple different ways in different places, but uh, he wrote in uh, a really really lovely and long note, and we've we already exchanged a couple since then. I won't try to read all of this, but he had lots of lovely things to say about sleeve rickets, but more importantly, he wanted to let me know about a new poetry podcast that he has just started. It is called Versecraft. Uh, it's much more serious and straight-faced than sleeve rickets. And if anything, I think he may disagree with me, or his, his agreements and disagreements may be of a different orientation than anybody else who's corresponded with the show so far in that he, I think he is far more aesthetically conservative than I am. He's, he is concerned chiefly with, you know, the ver he makes a strong distinction between verse and poetry verse being, uh, the, the conscientious use of meter of measuring lines, not merely breaking them. His show is, you know, it's usually like 20 to 30 minutes long. He takes one poem, he reads it, reads it back through, goes through it line by line, uh, breaking down not just the denotation, but the scansion. He talks about the metrical feet and how they're, you know, how the substitutions or the continuities of the, of, of the meter affect the uh, experience the poem and uh, and uh, create nuances and meaning. He's very smart. He's very precise, and uh, it is as I said. It's it's a much more serious show than Slee Ricketts, but it is a very thoughtful one. And I think at least some of the people who enjoy uh, my dumb rambles would find his very thoughtful <laughs> analyses. Uh, much more might might find his might find his show very informative. Um, it is it seems to be mostly scripted, which is just demonstrates in yet another way the self discipline and the rigor that he puts in the show way more than way more than I do. Uh, Alice uh, also started listening to it and was really and really enjoyed it. As she wrote to me, Elijah seems very sweet. Let's corrupt him. And I could not agree more. So if you are interested, go check out Versecraft. It is available on uh, all the usual uh, podcasting 
distributors and uh and i think you will like it i my my recommendation he has i think six episodes now out now i am it's still in the middle of the sixth one but my favorite of the ones out so far is the fifth in which he takes up a a free verse poem by wallace stevens um and and at least for my money the kind of the tension between his own stated preferences and the strategies of the poem in question make for an even livelier discussion of the poem than than in than in the other you know very also very thoughtful and informative episode so go do go check that out uh, and then I thought I would close with uh, in a um, in a recent episode of poetry says Alice read a poem by Kenneth Koch about Delmore Schwartz this is called A Momentary Longing to Hear Sad Advice from One Long Dead. And I liked it, but it put me in mind of another poem about Delmore Schwartz. Um, Delmore Schwartz was a, uh, a contemporary of John Berryman and was the, the boss of Saul Bellow, who was his assistant for a number of years and who wrote the the big weird sprawling novel Humboldt's Gift that uh, uh, Jonathan recommended to me he wrote it as a sort of a, a strange tribute to Schwartz. Schwartz was uh, a shining star of the poetry world. He kind of broke out as a young man uh, at the very peak of his career, and it was all downhill from there. And he he got worse in all respects as a poet, as a person, as a an organism his, his health was his health failed his mind failed his looks failed his talent failed and he died face down in the hallway of a flop house having alienated all those around him um, but john berryman wrote a number of late dream songs to schwartz and this is the one that came to mind so um i don't think it's any kind of anniversary of schwartz's life or death and i have read very little of his poetry itself but he lives as a i guess he's kind of a mythological figure to me and uh i see him as uh, i can't help but feel affection and sorrow for him because it just feels it feels a little too familiar to dismiss it feels a little too much like a like a possible future. So this is this is um, Dream Song One Forty Seven by John Berryman. He talks about Hen Henry is the the hero of the Dream Songs. He's also a, sort of a stand-in for Berryman himself, though not perfectly. Um, he cites Marcus Aurelius, uh, and and a, a an especially cynical thing Marcus Aurelius said about the human body. He um, refers to uh, William, who may, might be William Meredith, the poet, might be William Sloan, the editor, publisher, um, but is was, was at any rate a correspondent of Berryman's. And he refers to Gertrude, who was Delmore Schwartz's wife, at least for a while. I believe they, they ended up splitting up later on. But um, mostly he talks about Delmore. Henry's mind grew blacker the more he thought. He looked onto the world like the act of an aged whore. Delmore. Delmore. He flung to pieces and they hit the floor. Nothing was true, 
but what Marcus Aurelius taught. All that is foul smell and blood in a bag. He looked on the world like the leavings of a hag. Almost his love died from him anymore. His mother and William were vivid and the same male Delmore died. The world is lunatic. This is the last ride. Delmore. Delmore. High in the summer branches the poet sang. His throat ached, and he could sing no more. All ears closed. Across the heights where Delmore and Gertrude sprang so long ago in the goodness of which it was composed. Delmore. Delmore. I, uh, I I read this poem in grad school and then I forgot about it, or I didn't forget about it, but I I, I lost it and I and I kept trying to look it up and I wasn't able to find it because I, I misremembered the the refrain. I had thought that he explicitly compared the sound of Delmore, Delmore's first name, Delmore Schwartz's first name, to the ringing of a bell, like the the, the bell rung for a funeral. And I, and of course, he doesn't ever say that in the poem, but the repetition of it again and again, Delmore, Delmore, does have something of that effect. And I want to say it may actually have been like a smart observation Stephen Camper or somebody made in the classroom, but, but somehow I, I, uh, I assimilated it into my misremembering of the poem itself. Um, but that, you know, the repetition of the, those words and the repetition of that rhyme throughout the poem, horror, floor, more, more more, no more, any more, no more, Delmore. Uh, it, it to, you know, to my ear, it, it suits and enhances the slightly childish constructions that Berryman uses in, in this, you know, dream song and in so many of the others uh, that he balances with uh, with you know, with an extremely harsh vision of the world, and with, of course, uh, one or two erudite references, um, so that one is left with a strong, and and just almost but not quite out of control emotion, and yet the uh, the uh, rhyme scheme and and yet the prosodic and intellectual structure of a of an adult mind there is as in all of the dream songs i think of them as sort of being like like a because they're, so they're they're 18 lines it's three sestets and i think of the dream songs as being in a way like a kind of um like an antimatter sonnet you know if a sonnet is an octave followed by a sestet or, you know, as Cameron suggests, he doesn't even think it needs to be 14 lines. He just thinks that it's that that tension between the problem and the consolation or the problem and the diversion. Uh, that really is, what's, is what defines the sonnet. Um, and the dream songs seem to, they, they, they introduce problems in a way that suggests that there might be a consolation or there might be a diversion, but then there's nothing. There's uh, almost an insistent absence of any consolation. I'll just read it one more time because it's one that I um, 
I, I always find a little bit haunting. He actually wrote a number of dream songs about Domor Schwartz, and there's some really there's some other really wonderful ones. There's one in particular that God um, kills me. Uh, I'll just find if I can find this little section. Oh yeah, so he says, and this is in in Dream Song 150. He says, Berryman says, I'd bleed to say his lovely work improved, but it is not so. He painfully removed himself from the ordinary contacts and shook with resentment. What final thought solaced his fall to the hotel carpet, if any, and the New York Times' facts? I'd bleed to say his lovely work improved, but it is not so. Whew. That That's Berryman at his very best. That just razor blade of honesty. It's like when he wrote to um, in his elegy for Robert Lowell and he wrote... Uh, he wrote, I used to want to live to avoid your elegy. But, um, all right, so uh, that's Berryman and his sad dead friends. I'm just going to read this poem one more time and then call it a day. This is Dream Song 147 by John Berryman. Henry's mind grew blacker the more he thought. He looked onto the world like the act of an aged whore. Delmore, Delmore. He flung to pieces and they hit the floor. Nothing was true but what Marcus Aurelius taught. All that is foul smell and blood in a bag. He looked on the world like the leavings of a hag. Almost his love died from him anymore. His mother and William were vivid and the same male Delmore died. And that's just to clarify that that's, you know, the, the suggestion seems to be that he, <laughs> I mean, it's, there's something so crushing about that experience you get you know bills in the mail you get a you know notice from your accountant and you also get some letters from your mother and from maybe your publisher or a poet friend and a note saying uh, also Delmore Schwartz is dead it all comes in the same mailbag he looked on the world like the leavings of a hag almost his love died from him anymore his mother and William were vivid and the same male Delmore died the world is lunatic this is the last ride Delmore, Delmore. High in the summer branches, the poet sang. His throat ached, and he could sing no more. All ears closed across the heights where Delmore and Gertrude sprang so long ago in the goodness of which it was composed. Delmore, Delmore. Oh, my, my newly five-year-old daughter is crying in the next room so i'm going to go comfort her but that's uh dream song 147 by john berryman this is slee ricketts you can reach me as always at slee ricketts at gmail.com uh, thank you for listening with any luck i will be speaking to you again very soon until then <laughs>